And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now, today on the program, I am sitting down with Kenny Irwin Jr., who is the mastermind behind Robolites. If you don't know what Robolites is, I will attempt to explain it, although it is very difficult to encompass all that it is in one or two words. Let me give you a few descriptive phrases. It is robot-themed. It is Griswold-esque. As a matter of fact, it is the largest residential light display in the nation with close to 9 million lights on this thing. Um, it is very unique. It is otherworldly. It is very visual, colorful, and clown-filled. Now, these are just a few of the phrases to kind of give you an idea of what RoboLights is, but it is truly a unique experience. Now, Kenny Irwin himself is an artist by every definition of the word. Uh, he creates things that are both pleasing to the eye, things that will make you think, and he exists in several different mediums, including uh, discarded electronics that he turns into robots, uh, big pens, exclusively big pens that he uses to sketch very detailed, beautiful artwork. Uh, he uses resin skulls, molds that he puts uh, a resin in that he, he fills with various different artistic items to create these skull fill, skull, filled skulls, I should say, not skull filled. Although I imagine... If he hasn't already, then he should be filling a skull with skulls. He also is the world's first professional microwaver, and he has sold some of these things on eBay. And he even creates um, art with toenails. So he can kind of do it all. And what I've learned is that the secret to being an artist is to exist in two separate worlds. And I think most people can't really do that. Most people are stuck in the current reality, uh, the work-a-day place where you go to work, come home, do your thing, go through the cycles of, of, of life, and it can be um, you know, wonderful and, and very fun, but, but to truly be artistic, you have to think differently. You have to exist in the artistic world. You can kind of let your mind wander, and, and I think an artist takes things from that world and brings them into our own and kind of makes them manifest and introduces you to the way that they think and the way that they see their world and it is an artist's ability to bring that unique world to you that kind of defines who they are and what they do and their work in general so let's you know enough of this art 101 babble let's talk to the man himself kenny Irwin jr correct uh, yes that is correct now here's what's tricky is that you actually share the name of a very famous race car driver so when people look you up that's what they find did you know that uh, yes, that is also correct. Are you <laughs> that famous race car driver, or is that uh, someone else? Uh, no, just someone else that had the same exact name as me. But when you do put in Kenny Irwin Jr., the results, when you Google it, will, you, 
will both show him and me at the same time and the same <laughs> results. It's pretty interesting. Not so in the you same get a video, mix of though. art and race <laughs> car driving. Yeah, it's pretty incredible, but we're not talking about that guy. We're talking about the master of RoboLights, which is really just one facet of what you do uh, in your artistic world. Um, but let's talk about RoboLights. I know how I would describe it. How would you describe it? Well, RoboLights is basically, it's an annual art and light display. It's a culmination of an incredible amount of lights combined with my artworks. And my artworks being that made of recycled materials comprising of approximately a thousand tons of art spread over approximately four acres. Now, when you say it's a pretty large light display, how would you, what do you mean by that? Besides the four acres part, how many lights are we talking? Uh, well, we're talking approximately millions, <laughs> literally millions and millions and millions of lights. <laughs> wow. So, who counts uh, those things? Because I saw, I saw uh, Christmas Vacation, and they have 10,000 lights, and that thing shut down the power grid briefly. So we well, have nine million. Who's counting these? And it was my understanding what Chevy Chase did on his house was yeah. uh, 250,000 C9 bulbs. Right. So, yeah, that would definitely – I mean, it would – theoretically, it could send a spike into the grid because those are <laughs> those are big bulbs if they're at, like – and they can range anywhere from 12 to 20 watts apiece. Yeah. Unlike LEDs, which are a fraction of a watt, like yeah. barely even a measurable fraction of a watt apiece. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's probably not even likely that my, uh, all, the, all the LED lights that I have combined in this display are putting out as much, drawing as much energy as his did on his house. No, that's fair, but you still haven't answered the real question. Yeah. Who counted all these lights? How do you know there's 9 million? Well, it's an approximation. Um, basically, I get lights in by the ton. And I will tell you this much, one of the deliveries that I had was so big, it filled up an entire UPS truck just in one single delivery, of, and it was just nothing but my lights. I actually wished I had documented that, because it was actually kind of funny. The driver was kind of laughing, too, but it took us about, oh, about two hours to unload the whole thing between the two of us. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, and it's one of, you know, what's, you know how big one of those brown trucks is of that course. they drive around? Yeah. Had nothing but my lights in it. That's amazing. So how much is a ton of lights? Like, what is that normally? I usually buy mine by the string. Um, <laughs> I'm, not at, I'm not at ton level, but, like, what is a ton of lights? What does that run you? Uh, well, Ish, approximately. It can be in the thousands of dollars. Thousands uh, of dollars. Yeah, thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, yeah, it's, it's expensive, but the energy draw, because they are LED lights, save me money in the long run. And it's, it's, you know, also better, too, because it's not drawing so much power. Right. Well, you, we've skirted the issue, but you're kind of flirting with it right there. What does your light bill look like? Uh, the highest it ever was was in 2006. Uh, from my understanding, or at least from what I was told at the time, it was about $22,000 for the year. A, spread over about a five-week period. But this is well, <laughs> I was still using incandescent lights. Uh -huh. So these are the old-style lights. You could only plug uh, four strands into a line, so you could only daisy chain mm. four of these before they would blow a fuse. Right. <laughs> Unlike with LED lights, you, know, you can str you can daisy chain anywhere from 40 to 80 of these into a single line. Whoa, really? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, depends on the size of the string and the configuration, but you can do at least, uh, at, the, uh, at the worst case scenario, 32 to 40 on a, you can daisy chain. But some of them you can daisy chain up to 80, depending on the kind of lights they are. 
And so all of these daisy chain lights have culminated into what is officially the largest light display in the nation, correct? Uh, yes, it's uh, probably the largest residential light display in the entire country. Um, I think it was uh, HGTV or TLC. It was one of these two uh, networks that came out here back in two, between 2003 and 2005 that had determined it was the very largest light display they had ever seen in the country. And uh, they had um, been doing extreme Christmas you know, specials. Like right. they would air this on here to one overboard during holiday displays. Mm -hmm. And th so they determined best in the nation. Well, listen, Kenny, I'm not interested in best in the nation, man. I'm interested in world rankings. Where do you fit in the world of residential light displays? Uh, my light display has surfaced in uh, write-ups about about the best uh, light displays to see during the holiday periods and have been mixed in with even commercial venues popping up along side displays in France and Germany and Japan, um, Australia. Um, I've been in several articles that have written about the top five, top 10, or top 12 displays of various kinds. Top, so you're top 10 in the world? Uh, well, you know, these are different media outlets, and they all have their individual rankings about what they feel sure. is probably the best. There is really, like, no, like, um, I want the definitive specific, uh, official definitive thing on it, but the fact that I've even been mentioned in any of these was quite a surprise to me, and it was a delight. It's because, pretty incredible. Yeah, it gets more people to know uh, about RoboLights, and it gives more people an opportunity to be able to uh, see it and enjoy it. No, that's very true. So now we've hit one half of RoboLights, Kenny. We've talked about the lights, ad nauseum, some would say. I would do a very a big disservice to you if we didn't talk about the robo part of this. Uh, so you have a lot of robots here. W how would you describe what you do with RoboLights as far as the artwork goes? Well, basically the major premise of RoboLights, or the underlying theme, is it's known as a uh, why not world and a why world. Constantly, you know, we as people are going around asking why this, why that, why, 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 why. Well, ever since I've been practically born, I've always, you know, thought, well, why not? And that's been constantly my drive to do things, well, why not? Even though people say why. So basically, when people come to experience robolites, they're going to experience things that are turned on their head in a why not world. And basically, that's the first, uh, you know, the first experience, the first impression, the overall, um, you know, impression experience is one of it being unforgettable, something that they will not ever forget, um, that they'll love, that will make them happy, because hearing the laughter and the joy of people walking through RoboLights is what drives me and compels me to do this year after year after year, putting in, you know, an estimated three to three and a half thousand hours worth of work between the art and the lights and everything else. Uh, they're giant robots, and, and of course, it is RoboLights, so you're going to see a lot of robots. That's true, but people would be disappointed if they didn't. Now, do any of these things move? I mean, are these things, are they the ones doing, like, work around the house? Are they making food? Like, is this like Jetsons World, or they just kind of <laughs> hang out there and do nothing? Well, believe it or not, it may not be uh, a Jetsons World here at RoboLights, why, but it's something not? very akin to it. <laughs> a lot of these robots do move. They do animate. No, they won't cook your food or empty your trash or feed your kitty, but they will certainly uh, feed, your, uh, feed you eye candy. They will entertain <laughs> you. <laughs> they will make you, uh, 
they'll, they'll bedazzle you in wonderment. So yes, a lot of the artworks are animated, and some of them are pretty big uh, animated artworks. Uh, there's one out there that I did that's what's known as the uh, robotic uh, cl uh, clown sculpture that rotates. And it's, it's a full-scale amusement park that I transformed into an artwork. It's a, it's a giant rotating robotic clown sculpture, and this thing does move. Um, there's several other artworks that move throughout the display. And, of course, you know, most of them are robots, as in, you know, akin to the theme of what RoboLights is about. Right. And this isn't, you know, this isn't like Showbiz Pizza, Chuck E. Cheese animatronics. I mean, these things, these things look like they're from another planet. I mean, you know, these are, they're, they're robots with like clown heads and, you know, they're, they're made, they're, they're incredible. So this isn't, I, I think it's for children, but it's not really for children, is it, Kenny? Well, what it really is for, and even my dad said this, it's for kids of all ages. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it is for children. We're all children, which is, you know, it's just our age is a number. And, well, you know, any, anybody of any age, of course, any kid of any age, whether they be two or mm -hmm. 90, mm -hmm. will, get a, will get a kick out of this. Well, I will tell you that a kid of the age of three will get a psychological disorder out of some of your displays because um, there's melting human faces inside of microwaves. There's clowns. I don't know if you've seen the, the clown epidemic taking over the nation, but you've got some crowds, cl clowns in some pretty scary positions that would just reaffirm what children already believe about clowns, which is that they're evil death machines. Uh, <laughs> how do you feel about that? How do you answer that question, sir? Well, clowns have been a part of the theme of my artwork for decades. So this is something I've been doing in my artwork for a long time. Whatever else is going on in the world has absolutely nothing to do with me. So basically, I've always just been fascinated by clowns. I always thought they were fun, colorful. We do live in a colorful world, after all. Why, you know, mm -hmm. why have, you know, something boring and drab and brown and green, you know, gray or, you know, bland beige. Clowns are colorful. That's and they true. kind of fit the theme of RoboLights. I have not ever once seen, you know, a kid hate this or be, you know, be freaking out about it. And you haven't In fact, I have, but what I have seen is parents having a hard time getting their kids out of here because they just want to stay. Right. So that makes sense. It's a, yeah, it's basically, it's just a plethora and a kaleidoscope of, of color and wonder, uh, you know, a wonderland. But it's not like any, like, Wonderland. A lot of people quote it, well, it's better than Disneyland. I agree. Yeah. I do like Disneyland, but I do love RoboLights. Now, this is the 30th year, isn't it? The 2016 was, is that correct? That is correct. It is the 30th year. That's pretty incredible that yeah. it's been going on for 30 years. I started it at the age of 12 in 1986, and I've been doing it ever since. You started RoboLights in, in 2012? Not, you, no, you, in 1986. Ni when you were 12 is what I meant. When I was 12 years old. So now when you say you started, does that mean that you started building the RoboLights, or that's when you started having well, people come by and look? I was doing the artworks uh, before the light display even began. And, of course, I liked Christmas lights because, well, they were colorful and they were bright and they were festive and they were cheery and happy. I've always loved happy, cheery, you know, things. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just dawned on me, you know, I didn't see, you know, too many lights around during the holiday period. So I just, you know, I, I mentioned to my dad, I said, you know, it'd be kind of neat if uh, we had lights in our house. And he said, well, why not? Why don't you go ahead and start doing it? So he, he gave me the encouragement to do it. 
And I started hanging lights up on the house back in 1986, but I just didn't hang a few strands. <laughs> I tried to find as many lights as I could. And, uh, you know, in the first year I got, a, you know, I had a few tens of thousands of lights already on the front of the house. <laughs> That's incredible. But it dawned on me, you know, you know, not, it can't just be a light display. It's got to be something special. Mm -hmm. It's got to be something that involves robots. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was already making robots back then. Even when my mom gave me toys, it sometimes kind of drove her nuts. But I'd take toys apart and turn them into spaceships and uh, make robots out of toy cars that were given to me and just take them apart and make robots out of them. Always loved robots. Always had a fascination with them. I always thought they were fun. So when, when did you get your first robot? Uh, when did I do my first robot? Oh, I can't even remember. It's probably before memory. It's just like my art. I've been doing art before I could even remember it on account of my, what my parents have told me. They said that in the middle of the night, I had literally drawn outer space and alien scenes around the periphery of my room with my crowns on the walls <laughs> in a single night that surrounded the whole entire uh, room. And, of course, their astonishment and shock, of course, they came out and saw this the next morning that I'd drawn all over the walls of my room of all these outer space scenes. My dad, had, at that point, had known that there was something special going on. Uh, that's definitely one way to put it. Yeah. So now, when you, now let's talk about this for a second, because that's very interesting. Where do you draw your inspiration from? Um, so where were you seeing space aliens at three years old? Well, there is no external inspiration to my art, and this has been going on ever since I was born. They are actually it's internally contrived, so it comes from dreams that I have. And it's kind of interesting, when I was born, I basically, my, I guess my memory, uh, my memory split up between two worlds, this world and another world I was living in that I was also doing art in. And so I would share these experiences between the two worlds. I would learn from both worlds and it would continuously enhance my art. And this has been going on for my entire life. So in this world, I've made art, and in the other world, I've made art, too. And I learn things from the two different places because the two different places have different things to offer. So it's like a cross-pollinization, and it kind of continuously reinforces what I'm doing. Now, when you say another world, is this like, um, you mean like a world that's uh, like intellectually inside, like it's your brain is split into two different worlds? Well, basically when, I go to, basically when I go to sleep, I wake up in this other world. It's like a world that I'm living in a life very much like I'm living a life in this world. So this happens practically every night. And... There's different things, some of this world share, I, I guess the, mo the best way you could describe it's like a parallel dimension to the reality in which we live in. Mm -hmm. But I remember my experiences of that place as I do of this place, vice versa, when I'm there. And when I wake, when I go to sleep in that world, I wake back up in this world. And so it's just been a constant cycle that's been going on ever since I was born. So now when you say, so this other world, when you go to sleep, does it like pick up where you left the other world? So like, do the do the like the lives run like when you go to sleep here, you wake up there. Have you been sleeping in the other world and then wake up here, like you hopping back and forth? Yeah, that's pretty much how it works. It's basically a life that I'm living there, just as I'm living here. So do you have like a house and kids oh, yeah. over there and stuff like that? Oh yeah, yeah. I live with a family. I live with my family there, and uh, but the world's a bit different. Though there's a lot of similarities to how it is here. Um, it's a place very much like Palm Springs, but it's got, there's differences to the overall world itself. Where here we have 24-hour days. There, the days are variable. 
in, in, in lengths. So a day can be eight hours one day to 30 hours the next day to two hours the next day because apparently on that world it's got a, a very erratic uh, axis or um, mm. it wobbles all the time and it has two moons rather than our own one moon. It has two smaller moons. Right. So it, it's got... It's got different. It's got different elements. Uh, I have created art on that world, very much the same as I have here, but it's different from what I've got here. So do you make like? So does your art there look like normal stuff here? Like if you made like a fork in another world, would they be like, "Holy cow!" Whereas like if you did that here, it's normal. Well, yeah. Um, people are imp- uh, the people that are living on that world are impressed by what I create as what I've created on this world. Uh, uh, pretty much, and I have created some pretty substantial monumental artworks on that world. And so, when you go to sleep, that stuff still exists. Like the, it's um, so. If you were to build something and a piece of art there, and then come back, you know, wake up, come here, and go back to sleep, end up in the other world, your art still exists. There's yes, like, it does. Oh, like perme- There's like a permeance yeah, to it. Yeah, the same as it does here. That's incredible. Uh, and so, you use some of this stuff for your inspiration here. How did extraterrestrials fit into this whole thing? Well, this is the, well, basically, there's basically three facets to what drives my art. There's that, what I call the parallel world. Um, there's also the, um, the dreamt experiences of distant extraterrestrial civilizations. A lot of what drives the imagery in my art that I see that very lucidly in my dreams. So basically, my dreams, ever since I was really little, take me to these places far out in the galaxy, in other solar systems, long before they were even talking about uh, um, exoplanets. Um, I have a drawing in the laundry room uh, of what I drew. And at the time when I was little, I was only four years old, I just saw it as a a big red sun in the sky, but it was a red dwarf because it came off cool and it sent off an aurora through the sky. And I saw this in one of my dreams and I drew it with oil pastels exactly as I saw it. So why do you think this happens? Why do you, cause there aren't a lot of people who would have a shared experience like that. Why do you think that happens for you? I don't know. See, uh, with me, it's just a natural part of who I am. It's just the way it's always been. Like the sky's blue. It's just, you, I just take it for what it is. Um, to me, it's, it's hundred percent normal and it's all I've really known ever since I was really little, ever since I can remember. I guess that, that makes sense. And so you, so you take all that stuff there. Now, wh- how come recycled materials? Because as you said, a major part of what you do is it's, you know, recycled electronics and stuff like that. Well, in the early years, it began out of, well, basically necessity because it didn't have, you know, much of anything to really work with. So I'd find discards, you know, or just, you know, stuff at, our, at my dad's business. He owned a resort here in Palm Springs called La Mancha, which was kind of his own visionary work. Uh, it was the probably the first theme resort ever built, as far as I know, um, based off the amount of La Mancha and Don Quixote. And since some of these things would, you know, break or they wouldn't work anymore, I kind of like with my toys, I would, uh, you know, tinker and make art out of them. I'd take them apart and uh, transform them into other things that I, you know, saw. And basically the recycling uh, started as a form of necessity in the very early years i just didn't have much to work with and i but i had also realized at the time that well i really like the way this material works so i stuck to it 
but I also found the benefits of what recycling was about when I was really little, that, you know, it was better for the environment, that I was actually, my art was making a, you know, a positive impact with the environment because it was keeping stuff out of landfills. And basically, uh, the amount of art that I make today is, you know, kept an untold amount of stuff out of landfills where people get pleasure out of this stuff rather than eventually poisoning, you know, our water table or our food supply. People can come over and enjoy an artwork made out of this material. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's a, a big benefit to what you do. Uh, one of the things that kind of amazed me is when I look at this stuff from a distance, you know, like, like, for example, I think you have one of a horse, and it looks like a horse with a beautiful mane from a distance. Then you come up close, and it's like cables for the hair, and you've got, like, you know, a long microwave for the nose. And it's so weird because it's kind of like those pixelated images. When you get really close, it just looks like black, you know, like little squares of color. But when you back up, it looks like a horse. I mean, it looks like a horse. It's pretty amazing. I mean, it's it's really incredible what you do with what you ha- you know what you have. Like you're not taking clay, which you can kind of form into anything. Uh, you're taking already built pieces and making them fit whatever your vision is. Like, it's pretty incredible. Oh well, thank you. Uh, and, and what and the other thing that you know, this is a little secret. We're gonna peek back behind the curtain here because I see what you're doing here. One of the things that I think that makes the image kind of look like what it's supposed to is you put a coat of paint over everything. You use pastel colors. So, for example, if you're making that horse, the entire horse is pink. So you're not seeing the individual pieces and their different colors and textures and everything. They all have a uniform color on them, which helps build the illusion that it is, in fact, the horse. I see what you're doing, Kenny. I like it. Yeah. Well, also the paint, too, is to help protect it from the uh, elements, of course, and, of course, to fit in with what I do, which is, well, we live in a colorful world, so I want it to be, you know, bright and (laughs) happy-looking. Yeah. Well, and it's it's kind of a cool juxtaposition because it is, you know, bright and happy-looking, but there's also a lot of Mad Maxi kind of feel to this thing. I mean, there's lots of guns. There's lots of you know killer uh, bunny rabbits and various different kind of demented Santa Clauses. Santa Claus, I don't know what Santa Claus is. Uh, lots of these types of things. So how come the the, the art vision that you see is basically um, uh, a deathscape? Well, I wouldn't really call it that. Basically. You know, we are an intelligent species, but why as an intelligent species do we create these things and these contraptions to wreak death and destruction upon our own species like this and in the beautiful world in which we live in? Basically, these, what I am doing is making a mockery of the violent, you know, violent natures of the human civilization through my art. So when people see this, I'm actually making fun of this stuff because I think it's so ridiculous. We are an intelligent species. We should know better. And in fact, uh, I did a series called uh, the Gun Series when I was in, uh, in Cranbrook. And one of them was called the I See You Kill Somebody Gun. And it had, an eye, it had eyes on it, so it watches you. And it had tacks on it, so it was painful to pull the trigger. And this thing won me the best of show out of 1,000 entries in the Bloomfield uh, Birmingham Art Association uh, statewide art competition when I was just 15 years old. And adults compete in this thing. Wow. So I have always, through my work, I've always like made fun of all this stuff because I think it is so ridiculous so I make it look ridiculous 
And I also have fun too, you know, between uh, different storylines that run through my work. So there's a storyline uh, going between uh, Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. And of course, everybody knows the Easter Bunny, you know, sits backseat mm-hmm. to Santa Claus. So what would he need? Well, he would need to be the Mongolian Easter Bunny with his mobile Easter Bunny throne. Sure. And of course, the Easter Bunny wants to conquer the gift-giving kingdom. So what would happen? Well, you would end up with gift-wrapped uh, Easter eggs under your Christmas tree. <laughs> Everything is done in a light-hearted, fun way. Sure. Yeah. Well, I like that you have a point to it, because lots of stuff that I've read, you say, like, oh, it's for fun, it's for this. But art always has a point to it. Otherwise, there's no reason to have it. So, it's, <laughs> so you do have a point to what you're doing. Absolutely. There is points in my artwork, but the major point and premise of them all is, of course, it's a why not world and a why world and to, uh, you know, enlighten people to enjoy life, to have fun and to, you know, really love, you know, the world in which we live in. Now, you have large aspirations for what you do. You're looking to do an amusement park. Is this, is this still kind of in your vision for the future, to have an amusement park where you do all this stuff? Absolutely. It would be called RoboWorld. Um, of course, it would be based off of the design premise of RoboLights, but with full-scale amusement park rides. Uh, and it would be a collision between the art and the amusement world. It would be the first of its kind, fine art colliding with amusement. And this would be an amusement park like no other. Um, I know just like everything else that I've ever done, I know exactly what this thing looks like. And it would be amazing. So basically, RoboWorld is a multi-hundreds of acres in size. Mm-hmm. Um, it's shaped like an eight-pointed star. So in the voids of all the points of the stars where all the parking is, and it has four entrances to it. So unlike other amusement parks where you have to bottleneck through one entrance and wait in line forever, Going to the amusement park is easy to get into, but it's not just easy to get into. Pain to get in is actually really fun. <laughs> what? Because what's going to end up happening? That. <laughs> what is going to end up happening is, you know, when people come to this amusement park, they're going to want to put their money into it because they're going to get to flush their money down the toilet when they go into the amusement park. You mean an actual toilet? You're gonna there will be actual toilets. <laughs> <laughs> you think people want to flush their money down the toilet, Kenny? Well, you see, there's a difference between flushing your money down the toilet and, well, of course, flushing your money down the toilet at RoboWorld. So what happens? Because, well, of course... It's going to be fun. Who would want to do that? Because flushing their money down the toilet gets them an entrance right into RoboWorld to have a great time. Now, where are you in the process of putting this thing together? It sounds great, um, but, you know, right now we're just talking about it. Are there plans in place to make this thing happen? Well, I have plans in my mind, and I have, you know, drawn a few rough sketches of it. Um, I don't really have a committee. I don't really have, you know, anybody to back my vision, Mm -hmm. but I believe it will happen. I've had, what? 40 to 50,000 people maybe walk through this last year's RoboLights in a five-week period of time. That's a lot. And it gets rave reviews. Everybody loves it. And when I'm constantly hearing that, well, it's better than Disneyland over and over again, you know people are having a great time. No, that's very true. And there is a lot more to RoboWorld that I can tell you about. It's going to be absolutely amazing. So you, you have it, like, the idea that you have is it breaks up into world, or parks, uh, 
kind of like Disneyland where you have like Tomorrowland and Frontierland. So you have like Microwave Land is one of the places that you were talking about. Is that still part of the plan? Absolutely. There will be uh, several different themed uh, areas of RoboWorld, but it won't be like what you are used to seeing in previous amusement parks where they have something that simulates the Wild West or medieval times or things like that. No, this is going to be uh, something off the charts and themes. Um, you will have an entire area of the park devoted to the theme of microwaves. So that would be called Microwaveland. You will have a part of the park themed to the Mongolian Easter Bunny, which is known as the Mongolian Easter Bunny's Lair. You will have uh, the Pakistani Starfleet Headquarters section, where they face off with the Dove Master and the intergalactic Dove Invaders. <laughs> you will have the City of Robots, a, an actual fully built metropolis of robots that you can go through but all the rides in it are going to be are going to be really interesting there's this one ride in there um you know we all go to the museum we enjoy it um lots of beautiful artworks to see uh we stroll through it we walk through it carefully sit down on the bench mm -hmm. you know enjoy and take in the artwork but at RoboWorld, there will be a fully fledged art museum but with a twist in order to be able to see the museum you're going to have to step aboard the sleek white roller coaster that's going to zoom you past all the art super fast just the way an art museum should be passive and super fast don't you want people to take in what you put up well they will they'll be taking it in at light speed through the roller coaster and having fun and enjoying the art at the same time and an adrenaline thrill rush so it will be light speed. It won't be at supersonic. It'll be at well, light I speed. Well, I not literal light speed. Well, I'm that's curious. That We're talking take, out numbers yeah, here. They would outmass the universe if that were the case. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was going to say. That's the flaw yeah. in your plan. But I didn't want to. Yeah. I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. You know? No, it'll be a smooth, slick uh, roller coaster that goes through it. But one of the big highlighted attractions would be the. Uh, it's either going to. I'm I'm thinking between 50 and 100 seats on it, but it, it will be a large uh, pink toilet carousel. Yeah. And you know everybody's gonna wanna line up to ride that one. I mean, uh, who wouldn't wanna ride a pink toilet carousel with at least 50 toilets on it? I wanna ride one right now. I'm, you put the <laughs> thought into my head, I don't know what I'm gonna do on the drive home. Uh, now let's talk, so you've talked about microwave-o-land. We've talked about the silliness of human civilization fighting each other. That's a perfect segue into one of the other things that you do, which is one of several we need to get to, which is microwave theater, uh, where you basically cook very expensive items inside of a microwave. Uh, you are arguably the only professional microwaver on the planet. I'm not sure. I haven't done as much research as I should. Uh, my due diligence has been lacking there. But I take you at your word. What was this about, and what exactly do you do? It was born out of curiosity when I was really little. I would say I was probably about six years old. I just, I don't know, something clicked in me or dawned one day to just climb up in the pantry and grab a light bulb and stick it in a microwave to see what happens. Mm -hmm. Just had to do it, you know. I figured, well, why not? So we live in a why not world. Why not stick <laughs> it in there? Right? Yeah. So if I you did. don't live by your own philosophy, how am I supposed to, right? <laughs> exactly. So what happened when you stuck this, this light bulb in there? Well... It lit up without it being screwed into a light bulb base. And I was like, ooh, this is amazing. Like Uncle Fester. Yeah, it was amazing. And this thing changed colors. It wasn't just it wasn't just a light bulb that lit up and it well, it was just a light bulb, it was just a light. Yeah. It was changing colors. Uh-huh. And then it went boom. <laughs> <laughs> so I was it, 
I was thinking to myself, oh, I wonder what would happen if I tried other kinds of light bulbs. Uh -huh. So I must have gone through the house and tried about every kind of light bulb there was to, to microwave. And I was thinking to myself, ooh, this would make such a great TV show. And then there you go. Yeah. So <laughs> I would say it was probably, yeah, it was when I hit college. And this was still before they actually had uh, multimedia internet or anything that really was any, of any quality at the time. Mm -hmm. I was taking a time and media class. And uh, I did this as one of my uh, final thesis projects in the Time and Media class. I did uh, basically a 20-episode series based off of microwaving different various items. And it got rave reviews from the class and the teacher. They were absolutely, you know, amazed by the combination of the subject and how I presented it. Rave reviews, you said? Rave reviews. So what what does a rave review for a microwave destruction project look like? Well, it's the way I saw it, it wasn't really destruction. It was basically it was performance art because you're seeing in real time what these things do in such in a device that we I still don't understand why we even cook our food with radio waves. I don't I don't use them. Yeah. It's better to cook food in an oven as far as I'm concerned. I, I'm with you on that. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, so now, now what so what made you make the jump from light bulbs and then rave reviews in a college class to like I'm going to take a brand new iPhone that's really hard to get and I'm going to cook that and then I'm going to sell it. Well, that came on much later. Um so basically um I don't get ahead of myself. Bring yeah. me bring me up to speed. Yeah. It went from that so uh, MySpace came on the scene. I started mm -hmm. doing a f that was when I started um you know showing a few of the things I did a CD, tin foil, things like that and I put them on uh, MySpace and people really enjoyed them, and then YouTube was born, mm -hmm. and so... <laughs> and then YouTube was born. <laughs> yeah, YouTube was born, and so it, it, I then uh, started to uh, upload them to YouTube, and people really liked them. So I decided, well, this is going to become a microwave theater. I'll call it, um, I'll call it Dove's Fantastic Microwave Theater. But then I shortened it to Dovetastic Microwave Theater. Mm. So it made it more of a fantastical name. Got it. And so I would say it was one time, um, I guess I left my iPod uh, in one of my clothes and I washed it and it kind of ruined it. So I went ahead and was curious. said, okay, well, I wonder what would happen if I microwaved my iPod. And Didn't really work anymore. But anyways, I, I microwaved it and I uploaded the uh, video to YouTube. And everybody started freaking out about it. They I were like, they so. were all loving and hating it, but they were watching it. That's true. That's they most were don't all watching it. it. They all wanted to see it, whether they loved or hated it or not. They all wanted to see it. So, so. How many microwaves do you go through? What, what is the toll on the microwave? Like, we're not even talking about the microwave. Obviously, the item you put in there is destroyed. But what about the microwave? What happens to the microwave? Well, the microwave will generally last anywhere from about 6 to 15 various microwavings. <laughs> 6 yeah. to 15, that's it? Yeah. Well, it's, it's he, basically it's non-microwavable type stuff. Have you ever microwaved a microwave, or is that really meta? Yes, I have. What happened? And I'm the only one in human history that has actually successfully ever microwaved a fully functioning microwave that was microwaving while it was being microwaved. <laughs> My head just exploded. <laughs> yeah. uh, I will have video of that up on the website, too. because that. So you're the only person in human history. So you represent a very important hash mark in human history by microwaving a microwave. Yeah. And art, too, I'd imagine. And philosophy and physics, too. I'm going to throw those in there. It sounds 
you did a lot with that one. Yeah, yeah and I, I, I did this, yeah, I microwaved a microwave probably, I don't know, four or five, no, five or six years ago, and it's still a hit. Um, people that come by and actually see the physical microwave that's been microwaved here at Robolites, they all get a kick out of it. Jeez, they just can't believe that was even possible. Uh, I'm going to get a picture next to that and put that up. That's going up on the website, too. <laughs> now, you, so you um, have, have microwaved a, pl a PlayStation 4. Uh, this thing, it's kind of incredible. These things explode into flames inside the microwave. But now you sold this on eBay, didn't you? Is this, uh, or did this not? Is this not no, it didn't. No, it didn't. I've sold a few of my microwave artworks. And what I do, like everything else I do, is geared towards art. Mm -hmm. So microwaving is basically, it's another palette that I work in. Um, it's just the palette of microwaving, so various different electronics uh, that I have microwaved have ended up becoming these amorphous type extraterrestrial slugs. <laughs> so you will n notice, you'll notice them. In fact, there's a bunch of them here in the living room with me right now that are... Wait, right here, right now? Oh, right yeah. Right now? Yeah, microwave mutant slugs. Uh -oh. So basically, whatever I would take that I microwave, I would create an artwork out of. And I have sold a few of them in the past. Uh, in fact, uh, one of my neighbors actually owns a microwave laptop that I did. Really? And he proudly displays it in his house. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. And so and people can get these, though. I mean, you do sell them, like you do have a, you do have a website in, on eBay, right? Oh, yeah, I can sell them. I do have a few of them on there. Um, they don't sell too often, but the, those who do, who have bought them in the past, have really loved them. Now, since we're on the topic of your eBay site, I got a bone to pick with you, sir. So, as I was looking through the, some of the stuff that you're selling on there, one of the items, and I am actually shocked as I'm telling you this that this hasn't sold yet, but you have what you refer to as left tail, left toenail <laughs> art. That's up there right now. That is not art, sir. That is nail clippings. How dare you try to pass that <laughs> off as art? Well, art is art. If the intention is to do something for the purpose of art, it is by all definitions art. And that is by every means art as far as I'm concerned. Yes, I did uh, shed my left toenail and I signed and dated it. It's a conceptual artwork mm -hmm. and it is available on eBay to uh, purchase and own. Uh, well, we will agree to disagree on whether that is art or not. But All right, agreed. <laughs> but, you, but you definitely try lots of different things in order to pursue, the, pursue your art and everything that you're trying to accomplish. Uh, so you like telling stories with an Eastern bent. Because you, you converted to Islam how many years ago? I reverted to Islam about uh, almost a decade and a half ago. So it would be about 2003. 2003. Yeah. Um, so I, I got to tell you, you seem more like a Scientologist than Islam. I'm surprised you didn't go down that route. Uh, that would seem like something that you'd be into. Uh, not really. No? No. no. It's, it's not just, really your thing? It, no, it's just Islam is believing in because, you know, I believe in one God, and I believe that all the messengers were prophets, and it's just kind of confirmed what I believe. But there's something really interesting about Islam that I discovered when I was in the last grade in college, and that was known as the Golden Age of Islam. Now, everybody knows about the Renaissance, and they hear about it. It's taught in art history class. It's taught in history class, and often in school. And the Renaissance was a really amazing period of art and, uh, and you know, development in the arts. But what makes the Golden Age of Islam really mind-boggling? This wasn't just an advancement in art. Basically, uh, Muslims uh, saved uh, antiquity from, uh, you know, like when the, basically when, like, Rome was, 
eventually sacked by the barbarians and stuff, they managed to salvage a lot of what was learned by the Greeks and the Romans, but they also uh, innovated and invented things. They developed algebra, science, um, uh, different kinds of sciences, astronomy, uh, navigation of the seas, uh, the number zero, because up until that point, at least to my understanding in the Western world, uh, um, they had the Roman numeral system. So mm. the, that number system would only go up into the thousands. So without the number zero and algebra, some of these more advanced mathematics and uh, sciences, space travel, stuff like that would have, at the very least, have been delayed much further. Mm -hmm. So um, they also built infrastructure. They built roadways. They built schools. They built the world's first university located in the north of Africa today in uh, uh, present-day Morocco or somewhere around there from my understanding. But it was the world's first, you know university as we know of what universities are today sure and this is about the 13th or uh, about probably the 12th or 13th century a.d um they brought running water uh to spain um they brought uh civil engineering uh like more advanced civil engineering uh, medical sciences um basically it was just you know, a plethora of development, advancement, and uh, innovation, invention, uh, and the geo geometry, which really um, fascinated me. It was just a mind-boggling period, and it's just, it was really amazing. It was, and everybody was unified in what they did. So it was, it was definitely a period of incredible creativity. And this is what drew you to it, was the creative aspect of it. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just, uh, and basically also in Islam, all Muslims are commanded to seek ilm, which is known as knowledge, mm -hmm. to educate, to learn, to fill yourself with knowledge. And this is a beautiful part of our religion. Mm -hmm. Now, is this, because a lot of, so now we're going to move on to your, your pen artwork. Um, so a lot of these, um, a lot of these Eastern philosophies that that you've kind of picked up and have learned about and studied, they kind of show themselves up in your in your big pen. Or I don't know how else to describe it because you use big pens, but they definitely don't look like they were drawn with big pens. Uh, is that kind of a theme of like why you do that particular palette of art? I've been doing big ballpoint pen drawing since I was practically uh, well. I've been doing drawing ever since I was born, but I picked up on using a big ballpoint pen when I was in school because, well, that was the uh, writing instrument of choice they would always have you use in school. Mm. So basically, I adapted to it, and then I it just became refined over time. So basically, whatever these imageries or things that I saw out of my dreams or ideas that I thought of, I would grab the nearest thing, which was a big ballpoint pen, and start drawing these things. I've got. I've got notebooks going back to the first grade that have all my early drawings inside them. From first grade? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I saved them. I don't know why I saved them, but something compelled me to save them. Um, so I did just that. In fact, some of them were even on display in the Baltimore Art Museum, American Visionary Art Museum, recently when I did a major art installation there called Robotness. And uh, they really love them. So now, th so you mean on display are your first grade big ballpoint pen art? They were for a year. I mean, they weren't permanently on display, but yeah, they were on display in that museum for about a year. And so, what, what, like, what drives you to to use um, to, to do your drawing artwork? Are there different things that compel you to do each different medium that you have? 
Uh, basically, uh, like everything I do, it's driven through curiosity and exploration. I'm a very explorative artist, so I like to uh, push the boundaries of what new things I can create through my art. So basically, I will uh, create art out of uh, you know virtually everything, from using big ballpoint pens to making sculpture with microwaves. Uh, to uh, taking any kind of found object or donated object and uh, making you know monumental robotic sculptures with it, using uh, using various motors and things like that in it. I will paint. Uh, I will paint a multitude of things. Um, I will combine mediums. Uh, I will make. Uh, one time I made a guitar out of reverse roll duct tape, and I did sell that. That was when I was back in college. It actually had a full three dimensional face on the back side of it. And it was a working acoustic guitar that was made out of inside-out rolled duct tape cylinders. Wow. Uh, when I was in college, I did uh, this art installation in a two-bedroom apartment. It was known as Northern Zone Fortress. And basically, it was I transformed this two-bedroom apartment into a full-fledged spaceship made out of literally thousands of rolls of duct tape. It had a hydroponics bay. It had a clown room with a slide in it. Uh, it had a multi-level bunk bed and had uh, kind of like a maze that I had created in there, like a, a vertical maze that you could climb through. Vertical like, like a Yeah, like a jungle gym, sort of. I guess you could best explain it. It had a, it had a laboratory. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Where did and, all the duct tape go? Um, where did I get it well, from? No, so you had duct tape rolls that were, you know, had duct oh, tape on well, them so first. So basically, uh, and I've done this a lot in my art, um, and it goes back quite a long ways. I would say all the way back to the elementary grades. Um, I just, one day, I just started taking a roll of duct tape and uh, rolling the tape backwards, and I, it would make a cylinder, you know. Oh, I a, see what you mean. Got it. Okay. So I started sculpting that way out of uh, out of cylinders of duct tape. I thought you meant the the... the cardboard thing in the middle. You mean you actually would create a cylinder made out of duct tape. Yeah, the tape and then itself. I would uh, stick those cylinders together and make a sculpture out of it, and I would use a glue gun to hard form them. So that's basically how I did that. But uh, speaking of glue, yeah, I, I, I actually make sculpture out of glue. I sculpt out of paint. I paint with concrete. <laughs> um, and you got a whole resin skull, resin bird collection that you do as well, right? Like you might, so you have a mold of like a skull or a bird, and you put like an object in it, and then fill it with resin, right? Yeah. Well, sort yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of like that. It's a little. I'm more dumbing it down a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it's sure kind of a little more complicated. It's a little harder than like just throwing Cheerios in a ball kind sure. of process. Okay, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. But yeah, all these artworks that I do with the resin, they're all meticulously uh, placed and all the contents they have. And there's no hollow cores or fillers in them. Some of the resin sculptures uh, weigh um, 60, 70 pounds or more. I've wow. got, and I've also done some uh, metal casting too. There's a metal skull on this table right here. I would invite you to try to pick it up. And uh, oh, I'm gonna pick it up. Yeah, see what. Uh, That's a challenge. See sir. what your hands think of that. I, we'll <laughs> find out. We're gonna show yeah. video of that. Uh, now you also do music. I, I found one of your videos. Uh, it's surprisingly catchy. It's called Goo. Did you ever release your video album of of this? Uh, what was going on with that? I did do a video album when I was in college, but I don't know what happened to it, but the thing was pretty darn great. I mean, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I don't mean to, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but it did sound pretty darn good. No, that's good, I'm glad. Yeah. So you've never thought to go back to music? Uh, well, I do create this kind of music. It is called goo music. 
Mm-hmm. I've been doing this since I was practically a toddler, and I just started banging things on my room upstairs, and just like in the way the sound of things, you know, when I would bang things, the beat of it, mm-hmm. and then I would just start going goo 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 goo. Yeah. And uh, I started making this music, and I call and I did this one Christmas album. I called it uh, the Yono Cuckoo Goo Christmas album, and that thing is a big hit here. Every time people walk through here, that thing's playing over uh, by uh, Santa's pirate sleigh. Yeah, and people can't just stop bawling into laughter when they go when they if they even just hear one song of it, they're just bawling into laughter. No, it's pretty. I stumbled across one of these things, um, and I bawled into laughter. I'm not going to lie to you; I did think it was pretty funny. Uh, I'll have the video up as well, yeah. so people can listen to that. Now, you have. Uh, let's talk about. Let's step away from your artwork for a second. Um, I want you've got kind of a cool history to you as well that we should talk about. That would be remiss not to mention. While we're not well, uh, before we finish up this interview, but you own several copyrights and patents, do you not? I do have a couple, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, one's for the Dovetastic Microwave Theater, and the other one is for the Pakistani Starfleet. So these, are, do you have any? Do you have patents as well? Yeah, or, uh, they are they are trademarks. Trademarks. Yes, I don't own any patents, but I do have two trademarks, and I do copyright all the art all the different ideas that I come up with that I produce. And my dad taught me to do this because he says it will help protect your work uh, of course. from infringement. So that's what I do based on what my dad taught me to do. My dad was, you know, he was a fountain and wealth of knowledge. Yeah, no, I mean, he seems to have inspired quite a bit here. Um, now, you also in your family, um, I believe it was your aunt who owned the, the, LA, the, the St. Louis Rams, now the LA Rams. Um, so you've got football in your history too. Uh, they want a Super Bowl ring. Have you ever repurposed that Super Bowl ring into a robot? Uh, no. Or do you want to? No, no, that wouldn't happen because that's you know special to my dad. So, and that is a special thing that is a piece of family history, and it will remain that way. So you won't turn it into um, you won't microwave it or anything and no. fantastic microwave theater. No, because it's it's got you know it's got significant family history to it. No, that's it's a fair. very special thing. No, that's fair. Um, now let's close this interview. You were on the Conan O'Brien show. You helped decorate his set. Um, how did you come up with that set design, and what what was that process like? Well, basically. Um it took kind of a double take. I had received an email um, from what appeared to be uh, the Conan O'Brien show, but I was, I was, at the time I was like, you know, could this actually be for real? <laughs> so I clicked on it, and sure enough, they were reaching out to me about wanting me to uh, build their uh, stage set for them back in 2010. So I immediately corresponded with them. Uh, they had me come up there for about a week. Uh, his crew worked with me to accelerate the process and the build time. Mm-hmm. Um, I got my robo deer out there, and in the living room right here, there's five of the figures that were actually on a stage set are sitting with us right now. So we've got the Ducko Moose. We've got uh, Mr. and Mrs. San Magnetron Claws. Um, you've got mini Cyclopto Snowman, and then you got the Cyclopto Snowman. Right. <laughs> the Cycloptic Snowman. Yeah. Well, he was the original. Right. Of course. Of yeah. course. So. They're pretty incredible. We'll get pictures of those as well. They are right behind me, um, kind of creeping me out. Now, <laughs> one other thing I wanted to mention. So you come from a, a very large family as well. So you have 10 brothers and sisters? I am one of, ten, one, of ten. Uh, one of ten kids, yes, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Really? You wouldn't want to just be by yourself? No. It'd no be, way. But no? No way. 
I love I love being in a big family. Yeah. What do they like your art? Do they come by and support your art, Roboland? Do they uh, Robolites? My family's always been supportive of my art. Definitely. In one form or another, they've always been supportive of it. So I've always been grateful for their support, you know, whatever form it's ever come in. <laughs> However you can take it when you can get it anyway, right? Well, yeah. And it's, yeah, I, I love my family. Um, <laughs> they're great. No, that's, that's incredible. Uh, I'm glad that they're so supportive. I mean, it's, it definitely shows in what you do. Uh, now, how can people find what you, I mean, this can't be the only way people can find out about you. Are you, do you do social media? Obviously, we got your eBay store. We, we, people can still right now, as of this airing, can still pick up the uh, left toe artwork, but you have other pieces on eBay. Um, and you have uh, YouTube. How can people get in touch with you? Well, basically, well, of course, as you know, there's my YouTube show. That's really easy to get to. You just go to microwaveshow.com. So they can see the, uh, uh, the close to 700 microwaving episodes on there, and uh, many of them of which I've created, art, yeah, created artworks from. I have lots of other um, content on there that relates uh, to, uh, I've done a lot of videos on there about RoboLights, uh, some of my artwork builds in the past. And some fun stuff like water skiing and uh, other activities and adventures that I've been on. So they can enjoy that channel. And then I got uh, my Facebook site, um, which is easy to get to. The one for RoboLights is um, basically they just go to uh, robochristmas.com and they can easily access the RoboLights site through there. It just takes them to the Facebook site. Um, they can like it and uh, follow it and always be up to date on what I'm doing uh, with my latest uh, sculptures and, uh, and uh, Robolites and other various art forms that I do. Well, that is incredible. Kenny, thanks for being on the show today. And we're actually going to go take a little tour of, uh, I've only, I haven't seen this place during the day, so we're going to take a little tour yeah. and, and check out some of the stuff. Um, and, and I encourage everyone to come down and, and check it out. Yeah, definitely. And there is one other site, too. Oh, one, what else we got? There is the main uh, there is the main website, which will actually link them to all the other peripheral sites. It's KennyIrwinArtist.com. KennyIrwinArtist.com. And I will have all these links on the website to make it easy for you um, so that you can enjoy this art as much as I do. Kenny, thank you so much for being on the show today, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome, and thank you. Thank you. And thank, to, thank you to everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to FascinatingNouns.com to listen to every episode or to follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. You can also subscribe to my newsletter, which will tell you about the upcoming guests as well as any other projects that I'm doing. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Google Play. So please check out all my projects on DanielJGlenn.com, and thank you so much for listening. End of transmission.